It's clear as we read in our passage today that there are some things in here that Paul has written to Timothy uh, uniquely as a pastor. Some things that are meant only for Timothy as a gospel minister. And then there are things in this passage that Paul writes, which can be applied to all Christians that are um, applicable to all of us and relevant to our lives. And it's important to sort of distinguish the two so that we can apply uh, correctly. And so what I want to do today is uh, I just want to spend the first part of our sermon looking at what Paul said to Timothy uh, and who he was in his specific calling as a minister, and then to look at uh, what this might mean for all of us, what this passage has to say to all Christians. Uh, so we begin with this. What is Paul saying to Timothy and Timothy's unique calling and Timothy's unique office? Well, uh, just because he's speaking to a pastor here doesn't mean um, that we should check out, especially if you're feeling, um, you know, no calling, no inclination to the ministry. Um, we as a congregation should listen to this because we need to know this, that the responsibilities of a pastor, um, according to the Bible, are not ambiguous. They're not vague. You know, pastor's job description isn't just sort of doing anything and everything for the church. The pastor's job description is specific and clear. And so if we're going to grow as a church, if we're going to mature as a church, we need to know what to uh, think about these things. Uh, if you are uh, having wrong expectations of the ministers, uh, then often that will lead to immaturity in the church. It'll lead to a stunting of the growth. So what should a pastor do? Well, let me begin like this. A pastor should be willing and a humble servant of Jesus. Right? There should be nothing too beneath a pastor for him to do. Because if Jesus, the Son of God, was willing to wash the feet of his disciples, if Jesus was willing to lay down his life for his friends, if Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, um, then it's true. Pastors should walk in his footsteps, and they should be humble and willing to do all that the master has called them to do. And yet, in the local church, there are specific things that a pastor is called to do, specific duties and responsibilities. And it's to those things that a pastor should first and foremost commit himself. And it's important for the church to know because that means this is what a church should expect from the pastor, hold the pastor accountable to, and then hopefully guard and protect for the pastor. So what are those things? Well, Paul writes in verses 13 and 14 saying to Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so according to this passage, what is a pastor's responsibility in the household of God? And we see three things listed here. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. That's the first one. The second is exhort from the scripture. Uh, exhort or another translation would be uh, preach to bring about change in the people. And then the third thing is to teach the scripture meaning to set forth the doctrine, set forth the teachings that the Bible relays. Now, what Paul lists out here as three separate things aren't actually three distinct activities. They're more like three aspects of one ministry. One ministry a pastor is called to do, which is the public ministry of the word. You see, a pastor is uniquely called in God's church to publicly read the scripture, encourage people from it, and establish them in the doctrine that it teaches. And that's why Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to this. This should be the pastor's devotion, his discipline, his commitment, his priority. Now, 
this doesn't mean it's the only thing a pastor does, but it should be the main thing a pastor does because it is a unique calling um, of the office that he holds, an office that others aren't called to have. Now, here's the thing. When Paul writes to Timothy, he knows that this isn't some private correspondence and private email between him and Timothy. He knew that this letter would be read to the congregation. And so in reading it to the congregation, it was forming the expectations of the church members. What were the members to expect from their pastor? What were they hold him to uh, hold him accountable to? What should they guard for him? And the answer is a devotion to the faithful proclamation of the word of God, to the public ministry. Now, why is this so important? Why should this be protected? Why should Timothy devote himself to this? Well, it's because God's primary means of grace for believers to grow in Christ is through the preaching of the word. Preaching has always been God's intended way to feed and to nourish his people. Now, of course, there are many other good things that Christians should commit themselves to. Community groups and discipleship classes and personal Bible reading and personal worship, Bible studies. All of these are wonderful avenues to grow in faith. But God's established way, beginning in the Old Testament, carried over into the New Testament, continuing even today, is that his people will grow and be equipped through the public reading of his word, exhortation from it, and teaching from it. And that's why Paul goes so far as to say, Timothy, if you neglect this, right, if you fail to devote yourself to this, you're actually neglecting the gift that the Holy Spirit has given you and the calling to which the Holy Spirit has called you. Paul says, Timothy, this is why you were ordained. This is why the council of elders laid their hands upon you, consecrating you for the office of elder. To preach and to teach God's word. And the implication that has for us is this. It means that in a healthy, maturing church, the pastor should take seriously the call and the duty to regularly preach God's word. And the people of God should take seriously the duty to receive the word so that then they are equipped to do the work of ministry. You see, it isn't solely the pastor who does the work of ministry. He does the work of one particular ministry that will equip and unleash the saints empowered by the Spirit to do the work of ministry. Paul is writing to Timothy, who's pastoring the church in Ephesus. But Paul, years earlier, had written a letter directly to the church of Ephesus. And he writes in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 12, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, that's God's blueprint and God's design for the household of faith. That the minister devotes himself to the preaching of God's word and the saints receive it and are equipped and built up and empowered to then go out and do the work of ministry, to build one another up in Christ. I just want to say, uh, I commend Cornerstone and I'm extremely grateful to God. I'm extremely privileged uh, that our church understands this. That if you look out at our servant ministries, um, it's not just a pastor doing ministry. It's not just the officers doing ministry. It's not just longtime, really committed members of Cornerstone doing the ministry. That so many of the saints here are doing the work of ministry. And I'm so blessed and I'm thankful and I encourage you. And the blessing of that is that it frees me to devote myself uh, mainly 
first and foremost, to this public ministry of God's word. And I know that, and I share that in such incredible humility and thanksgiving and privilege, because I know it's not true of every pastor. Recently, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine um, who told me about a month or so ago uh, of a time that it was right before Sunday worship, and he was preparing his heart to preach God's word. And then he was tapped on the shoulder and looked over, and I was a church member going, hey, pastor, the men's toilet is, the men's toilet is clogged. Can you do something about it? And he was just kind of, you know, shook. And he was, he was startled because, you know, I mean, he was getting ready to prepare his heart for the preaching of God's word. And here was this guy with this urgent request. And he was thinking, well, is it so urgent? You had to tell me right before service. Is it so urgent that only I can take care of it? I mean, how many people did you pass by in order to find me, in order to, you know, get me to do this? And he's a humble servant of God. So he took off his blazer, went to the bathroom, took care of it, came back to the sanctuary and then preached, right? So he plunged the toilet and then he preached God's word and he did it all for the glory of God. But why do I share the story? And the point isn't to say, guys, this is too beneath a pastor, so don't bother pastors with this, or this kind of custodial task is beneath a minister. It's not important. That's not the point. I mean, when I heard this story, I grieved for this brother, as I hope your heart grieves, because it was an evidence of a member not allowing his pastor to devote himself to the preaching of the word in an unhindered way. I mean, if anything, he was distracting the pastor from it. Because this matter could have waited till after service. It could have been addressed to a deacon. It could have, um, the member himself could have found a plunger and taken care of it. You know, the, the, the point is this, dear friends, um, if we believe as a church that there is a, a priority uh, to the preaching of God's word, um, then we will hold the pastor accountable to it. We will expect it, dare I say, demand it of the pastor to vote himself to these Labors. Now, I don't say this as a rebuke to our congregation. I say it because our congregation is doing this, and I think it's wonderful. And the result of receiving then this public ministry of the word is that you are equipped to do ministry, that the church is built up, as it says in Ephesians 4, building up the body of Christ by the work of one another. And one of those works is what Paul addresses here. It's setting an example for other believers so that we may be built up in the faith. That's the work that all of us are called to do. And so if you look in verse 12, Paul writes this to Timothy, but it applies to all Christians. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, what does that word youth here refer to? Because usually in church context, youth refers to youth group or youth students. Um, but youth here referred to Timothy, who was most likely a man in his 30s. He was in his 30s when Paul wrote this to him. Now, for some of you, you hear someone in their 30s, and you're like, that's ancient. That's so old. You might as well be 100 if you're 30. And then others, you were like, 30, that's a baby. What can I learn from somebody who's in their 30s? And some of you are in your 30s, and you're like, no, that's the perfect age. Well, in the Ephesian church, being in your 30s would have been considered young, and so Timothy, who already was struggling, who didn't have much confidence in this congregation, you could understand the trepidation and the apprehension he had to minister to people who were older than him, minister to people who had been discipled by Apostle Paul himself, and he had to come and be the next pastor. You can imagine the type of fear and hesitation he had. I remember feeling those exact things when I was called here at Cornerstone. Um, I remember I was talking with the search committee in the summer of 2016. 
And they extended the call and asked me to be, come and be the pastor. And they said, well, what can you start? Uh, and I remember delaying it as much as possible. So we were talking in the summer and I said, uh, the earliest I could start is October, October 2nd to be exact. Um, and they graciously agreed, but I never told them the reason why I asked for October 2nd. And the reason was this, uh, my birthday is September 30th, and I wanted to be one year older on my first Sunday as the new pastor. I didn't want to be one year younger. And to be honest, I, I wrestled with this because I was afraid that people would despise me for my youth. When they extended the call, I was 29. But I didn't want to say I was 29. I wanted to say, oh, I'm in my 30s. And so I waited until I turned 30. I mean, how can you reject a 30-year-old minister? That's when Jesus started his ministry. I mean, and so personally, I was wrestling with this in the same way Timothy wrestled with it, to not let youth be an obstacle to doing ministry. And I drew a lot of encouragement from it. However, not only did I draw encouragement from the verse, I was rebuked by the verse. And maybe this verse rebukes us in this way. I realized that I was focusing so much on my age. I was acting and living as though legitimacy and faithfulness and maturity in Christ depended on the year that I was born. But that's the opposite of what Paul's saying, isn't it? What Paul's saying to Timothy, what he's saying to pastors, what he's saying to all Christians is regardless of your age, set an example to one another of what it means to live in godliness. You see, we are all called to do this, whether to younger people, whether to older people. Now, let me speak for a moment to our context of the church because uh, we are majority Asian American, majority Korean American. Uh, this applies to everybody, but I, I wanna speak to you specifically because we have in our culture, this cultural value, don't we, uh, of a sort of hierarchy of age. And so we're taught at a young age to pay attention, you know, to know who's older and who's younger and to be respectful, right? And, and this cultural value is of tremendous uh, advantage. It really helps us. I, I think it's a, it's, it's a very uh, good thing to see younger people express godly honor and respect toward their elders. And yet sometimes this wonderful cultural value actually becomes disruptive. It becomes a barrier to living according to scripture. Because sometimes as a result of being younger and having and looking and considering others as older than you, you don't set and strive to set an example before believers. Oh, they're older than me. I can't do that for them. I can't spiritually benefit them in any way. And then on the flip side, those who are older tend to look down on those who are younger and say, well, what am I going to learn from them? When the plain truth is this, there is no formula that says if you are younger, it equals spiritual immaturity. And if you're older, it automatically qualifies you to be more mature and more wise. And so I just want to quickly here exhort those who consider themselves younger. I'm not going to put an age range to it because different people subjectively will understand it in different ways. But for those who consider yourselves younger, be bold. I'm encouraging, I'm exhorting you to boldness in living an exemplary life. I think too often, if you grew up in the church, you're kind of very familiar with these progressions in church ministries. And some churches even call them graduations and they're treated like promotions where you're a kid and so you're in children's ministry and then you graduate to youth ministry and then you graduate to college ministry and then you graduate to young adult ministry and then, you know, before you know it, you're considered old in the church. But what often happens is this negative impact that I meant for Christians, which is this, that when you're younger and you're always treated as younger, 
you end up perpetually seeing yourself in a position in the church to receive and never to give, never to contribute, never to take ownership. You're saying, I'm too young in the church. Look at all the older people. And the result is that we defer responsibility to those older in the church and we don't take up the baton and we don't get ready to pass it. And that stunts personal growth and it will stunt the maturity of the church. And you see the dynamics at play, don't you? Where people who are in youth group and then get, uh, go to college and then become the young adults and then they get married and then they have kids and yet they're still going around saying, well, you know, the adults are doing this. And I'm like, you're an adult. And ironically, all the, all the youth kids are looking at you as if you're old and you keep perpetually looking at other people as if they're old. And what doesn't help us is when we embrace and we employ the young adult terminology in the church. There are not young adults. They're adult adults. If you go to Barnes and Noble and you say, can you take me to the young adult section? They'll lead you to the books where there's like Hunger Games and Twilight. Why? Because young adult is 12 to 18. I mean, I think, I just want to let you know, we intentionally here are calling it bridge ministry. And then when we define it, we define it as ministry to those in their 20s and 30s, not to young adults. Because we don't want people to feel under this perpetual sense of I'm younger and I can't do this and I can't do that. When Paul is saying, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, set an exemplary life. And in brief Exhortation to those who are older, if the younger folk need to be exhorted to be bold, then the older folk need to be exhorted to exercise humility, to be humble. The original audience would have read Paul's words and they would have been rebuked, admonished by what he said. When he said, don't let anyone despise you for your youth, the older folk didn't read that and go, oh, well, I can, be, I can despise for his youth, but he just shouldn't feel that way. No, it was a rebuke against them. To get rid of an air of dismissal and an air of condescension. Because sometimes we're blind to the models of godliness and holiness exhibited in the lives of young people because we don't expect that of them. And so we don't think we can learn from them. Oh, they're, they're my kid's age. People in my company are that age. Oh man, they're always messing up. And we dismiss that. So we need to be careful to humbly receive the examples of those God has set in the church so that maybe you can even say, I want to imitate you as I imitate Christ. So there's two exhortations here. For those who are younger, be bold, set an example. And for those who are older, be humble, learn from the example. Now, what is the example? Well, Paul describes it in five areas. In verse 12, when he says, in speech and conduct, love and faith and in purity. So I want to take the time to um, reflect on each one of these with us. The first is to set an example in speech. We're called to set examples in our speech. So how is your speech? What would others say about your speech? Would they say that your words are seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, that your words are life-giving, that your words help and your words heal? Or would they say that when you speak, your speech, it hurts and it harms? You're always tearing down. Are you prone to wound through your speech? Are you condescending in tone? Dismissive, sarcastic, critical, judgmental? Do you use these lips God has given you to spread gossip and rumors saying, oh, I'm just sharing a prayer request on behalf of somebody else? 
Or are you passing on encouragement and thanksgiving? We're made in the image of a God who, when he spoke, gave life. So too, in our speech, we should give life. Dear friends, are you setting an example to believers in how you speak? And then Paul goes on to say, conduct. Conduct refers to behavior here, how you live before others. Because he's saying it's not enough to just say the right things. If you say the right things, but you live in the wrong ways, you're just a hypocrite. You're contradictory. So what you say should be backed up with how you live. It was the Puritan Richard Baxter who warned us not to unsay with our lives what you say with your tongues. Because that's the great temptation, isn't there? To live in the contradiction. That your godly conduct isn't conforming with your gospel confession. So dear friends, how is your conduct? Are you living the same in the household of God? than you are in your own household, in your workplace, in your community. Set an example to the believers in your conduct. Third, Paul says in love. Now, Paul here isn't speaking about love for God. He's actually talking about love for others. A love evidenced in how you serve people and how you put their interest above your own. Love that's evidenced in relationships with others, not as you look and evaluate people saying, what benefit can I get from you? If I spend time with you, how will you better me? But love that looks at other people and saying, if I'm in your life, how can I be a blessing? Love, that is 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, is patient and kind. Love that forgives, love that extends compassion. Because in the end, to live an exemplary life of love is not about feeling warm feelings in your heart. Love is displayed. Love has hands and feet and takes on action. So believer, set an example in your life of love. Fourth is faith. Believers of all ages are called to set forth an example of godly faith. And godly faith is a faith that's cultivated. It's a faith that's nourished. It's a faith that is exercised. I think we are prone to just assume our faith. Once we have it, we think that even if we don't attend to it, it'll be fine. A lot of us have this view of faith like it's a rock. If you find a rock out on the yard and you put it in a box, you close the box, you put it in a closet, and you don't attend to it for years. And you come back five years later, 10 years later, and you pull out that box, you look at the rock, will the rock have changed? No, it'll be exactly the same. And I think in a lot of ways, people think, oh, I have faith. And so I could just kind of leave it alone. And oh, yeah, I had faith in youth group. I had faith in college. And that's why, to be honest, there are people who are mature or, or uh, old in age, have been Christians for a long time, and yet their faith is weak and fragile. Because we need to attend to our faith. Faith is not like a rock that you can leave alone and it'll be the same 10 years later. Faith is like a plant. You need to nourish it. You need to water it. You need to expose it to the right things in order for that faith to grow. Because if you neglect it and store it away and leave it alone, then it'll shrivel and it'll die and it'll be lifeless. So set an example in your faith by nurturing it and nourishing your faith. And fifth is in purity. Set an example in purity. Now, what does Paul mean here? Purity here refers to sexual purity. And this is because just a few verses later in chapter five, when Paul instructs Timothy of how to deal with women in the church, this is what he writes. He says to deal with older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in all purity. And so purity here means when you're, refer, when you're um, relating to the opposite gender, 
relate to them with integrity of heart and godliness in your conduct. And so for those who are married, it means staying clear of any inappropriate relationships with those who are not your spouse. Avoiding all kinds of adulterous relationships, whether it be physical or emotional, avoid it at any cost, maintain purity. And then for those who are single, it means abstaining from sexual relationships with those who you're not married to. If you're not in a covenant of marriage with them, keep away, resist the conformity to the sexual ethics of the world, which says, oh, it's fine. You got to test compatibility. But the keep Hebrews, which says, honor God as you keep the marriage bed undefiled and pure. Are you setting an example in your purity? But here's the thing. Purity, how can you set an example in purity? Because if you are doing these kinds of behaviors, you're not doing it in public, you're doing it in private. You're doing it in the bedroom. So what does this mean? How do we know if others are being pure or not? How do we know if we're giving a good example of purity? Well, again, Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter five, verse three, giving us a hint of what this means. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, your manner of life should exude this kind of purity so others can see and notice, but how it must not even be named among you. I actually love the NIV translation here, which says that there must not be even a hint. So not only should there be no scent of impurity about you, there should be an aroma of purity coming from you. So Paul says, set an example to the believers in your pursuit and your practice of purity. These are the five aspects Paul is calling us, whether you're young or you're old, whether you're a new Christian or a longtime Christian, whether you're an officer in the church or a lay member, Paul is calling us to live a life of example. But notice, but notice what he emphasizes is the reason. He doesn't say live a life as an example um, because it gives God glory, although it does. He doesn't say do it for yourself, although it does. He talks about living a godly life and sharing a good example for the good of others. And this is why how you live your life in the household of God blesses and builds up one another. Because he writes in verse 15, he says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Why? So that others, so that all may see your progress. He's saying when you live and strive after an exemplary life, others see your progress. They see your sanctification. They see the gospel at work in you. And he says, it's good for them. It ministers to them. And Paul writes this little confusing phrase here at the end of verse 16 in closing this chapter. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And what is going on here? Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself, on your godliness. Keep a close watch on your teaching, on the gospel. So he's saying the gospel and your godliness have a relationship. And he says, if you persist, and maintaining the gospel and godliness, he says, you will save yourself and your hearers. Now, Paul isn't saying that you can save yourself. He's not saying Timothy is going to be responsible for other people's salvation. Earlier in verse 10, he said that we put our hope on God, the living God, who is the Savior of all. So he knows God is the Savior. So what is he talking about here? 
He's saying something happens when you keep a watch on your godliness and your gospel, the gospel you confess and the godliness with which you conduct yourself. And he says, when you do that and you live consistently and rightly, other people look at your life and they come to believe the gospel themselves. When you live in a way where your gospel and your godliness align, that gives compelling and convincing evidence that the gospel is true, that the gospel is the power of God to save and to sanctify. And so others look at your life and say, man, if God is doing that work in you, he can be doing that work in me. If God is doing that for you, he can do this for me. Because what is the gospel saying? If you believe in Jesus and you believe in his finished work, it means the penalty of sin has been taken care of. He's been crucified, the wrath of God taken in your place. If you believe in Jesus and his finished work, the power of sin has been broken. There's no dominion of sin over your life. It has no grip on you. You are no longer a slave to sin. But also if you believe in Jesus and his continual work in you, the presence of sin is being overcome that Christ is availing to you the very power by which now your speech is transformed and your conduct is godly and your love is pure and your faith is growing and your purity is kept. Because on our own, we would fail in all of these ways. But in Christ, we're now able to practice and immerse ourselves as the Spirit is changing us from within to give testimony in our speech that others might hear what we say and say, by his godliness, by the fruit, I know the root. By the godliness I see, I believe the gospel at work. Then in your conduct as it's holy and consistent, your love, which is genuine and Christ-centered, your faith that is growing and strengthening, and your purity that you are seeking after that they might know the gospel is real, and powerful, that God is at work to save and to sanctify. And so friends, we are called as a family of faith to live in such a way where we set an example before one another, before the believers. Notice also, Paul doesn't say that you're setting an example for the unbelievers. For the believers, the way you live encourages one another. And so may we strive to live exemplary lives. Yes, that give God glory, but also serve one another as we press on in the salvation that God has called us to. So dear saints of Cornerstone, set an example in your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. Let's pray.